Turn in our Bibles or devices or take a look at the screen at Luke chapter 6 today. I'm going to read in a moment from verse 46 on to the end. This is Jesus' conclusion to the longest message that he preached recorded in Scripture. If you want a Bible, don't have one, just lift your hand. Ushers will slip one to you right now. We call it the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew, the Sermon on the Plain. And if you weren't here the last three weeks, I just encourage you to listen to the podcasts as uh, Anne and uh, Alex and Rick each took parts of that great message and uh, just unpacked it for us. But I get to look with you today at the conclusion. And unlike most classical speeches, where we would have expected that Jesus would have summarized his main points and then given us a go-to-it punch, he simply tells a story and leaves it hanging as he exits stage left. The story is the form of a parable, or we might call it an allegory or a metaphor, and this is what it says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I'll show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck the house, but it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and the destruction was complete, period, end of long message. Jesus left. Think about that. Well, we will today for a couple of minutes. It's a simple story. There's two houses. There's two ways to build a house with or without a foundation. The one thing that's guaranteed is life's storms are going to come. They're going to come with wind and rain, and it's going to howl, and a house that's on a foundation is probably going to stand, and the one that's not, well, if it's floating down the river, it's a little too weak to say, I think I'm going to try to put a foundation under it now. Uh, talk to friends on the way in this morning. They just bought a new house this week, and all the paperwork is in to the mortgage company. They're all excited about that. I didn't even have to ask the question, by the way, does your house have a foundation, and is it built on the beach? Didn't need to ask. You know, if you went to a lender and said, I'd like for you to lend on my house and know it has no foundation and it is built on sand, it might be a pleasant conversation. It would give the lender an opportunity to chuckle that day, but you probably would not get a loan. There are some things that just need to be founded. And here's Jesus' assumption. It's a guarantee in life. Bad stuff is going to come your way. The relationship is going to be strained. Those kids aren't going to turn out as the perfect angel that you thought you conceived. There's not going to be as much planned for retirement as you had anticipated. That boss isn't going to turn into the delightful person that you thought hired you. Life's challenges are going to come. And what are we going to do in preparation for that? Well, as a lucky kid that grew up in church, I learned this story. Did some of you as well in church? Yeah. And some of you here have taught a song to our kids here at Evergreen. It goes like this. Aren't you glad that I'm going to sing to you today? Ed, aren't you feeling so good you came to church today? Here you go. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man... 
built his house upon the rock, and the rains came tumbling down. Thank you. Sing it with me. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood fast. Oh, yeah, you are really as bad as I am. But there's more. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the rains came tumbling down. Now, you all learned the chorus. You can sing it. The rains came down as the floods came up. The rains came down as the floods came up. The rains came down as the the floods came up, and the house on the sand went flat. All right. There's a third verse. Nobody's asking for it. There you go. Uh, we probably won't put this one up on the uh, podcast, Jared. We probably won't do that one. The third verse, though, the third verse is where they messed with me when I grew up in church. Because the third verse, while absolutely true, is absolutely not the point Jesus was making in this passage. It goes like this. I'd wrap it if I could, but I'll just say it. Yeah. Bring Moses. Moses has some moves. That's right, yeah. It says, so build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. Build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the end of the chorus is, and your house will stand firm. That's what it says. Now, is that true? The answer is yes. It's not a trick question. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Build your life on the rock Jesus. But did you notice in the story that that's not the point Jesus is making? That's an assumption that's already there. No, when you take a look at this parable, there's three players in it. The first player is you building your house. The assumption is everybody builds their house. Whether she lives in Banks or Forest Grove or Cornelius or Hillsboro or Aloha or Bethany or Beaverton this morning, he or she, they are all building their house. We are made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. He is creator and he's creative. And each of us, near or far from God, is building your house. That's an assumption. You will build your life. Second assumption, Jesus is the rock. And for people that want to connect their house to the rock, they will be well prepared for the stuff that happens in life and they'll be left standing on the other side. Here's the point of the story. Connect your life to the rock by building a foundation. And Jesus asks this powerful rhetorical question at the end of this grand message, and he says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now, there's only three times in the Gospels that it's recorded that Jesus used that particular word two times in a row. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? By the way, he didn't say, why do you call me friend? That would have been appropriate. And for someone who calls Jesus friend, they would say, I want to get to know you better, right? He did not say here, why do you call me teacher? Though he did refer to himself as teacher, had he said, why do you call me teacher? They'd say, because we want to learn more about you. No, he says, why do you call me Lord? 
Lord is master. It's the supreme one. It's the one that's worthy of honor and respect, the one that's worthy of being emulated and followed and responded to and listened to and obeyed. And now he puts it in the trip, the, the duplicate. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? These are the really pious people. And then he asks the continuing question, and you don't do what I say. I think in 2013, there's three kinds of Christians that are around. The first group of those Christians are cultural Christians. Uh, usually a cultural Christian defines him or herself by what they're not. Uh, what does it mean you're a Christian? Well, I guess I'm a Christian because I'm not. And then you can fill in the blank. I'm not a Muslim. I don't have a Jewish heritage. Um, I'm not a, uh, a Hindu. I'm not a Buddhist. I have kind of grew up in this Christian milieu. And uh, I celebrate Easter and Christmas, and I really like the guy in red pants. That's kind of the, the cultural context. The second kind of Christian is a religious Christian. This is a person that's gotten certain systems and rules down right. But they may regularly attend church, or at least periodically. They, they are probably uh, benevolent givers to charities. Maybe they even tithe to their church. And they probably have a Christian code of ethics. Maybe they would try to live based upon the Ten Commandments or maybe the golden rule that Jesus taught, but there would be a system about their religious Christian practices. And by the way, most of what they would do would be absolutely well-intended and helpful. But it is not the kind of person that Jesus was addressing here. Because a religious Christian does not necessarily need a lot of fresh life and vitality in the way she lives. Life is pretty normal. It's prescribed. It's predictable. I do these things. Jesus was addressing a third group of people. In fact, it was the only group that was there in the audience today. Cultural Christians, by definition, and religious Christians hadn't happened yet. That was a later uh, occurrence. But Jesus is speaking now to his followers, his true followers, these people who are willing to live a very dangerous life of uncertainty, where the unexpected happens, where they're called to stretch beyond their ability, and they're invited into things that are new and unknown with outcomes that are outside of their control. It is a radical way of life. And he says to these followers, why do you call me by a title that suggests you honor me with that kind of influence in your life? But you don't do what I tell you to do. And that question is the formula for foundation building in life. I'm building my life. I want it founded on the rock of Jesus Christ. It's when I hear his words and put them into practice that I actually make this connection and my life is ready for life's storms. So who were these followers and what problems were they experiencing that Jesus was addressing? Well, notice that the true followers have two problems. It, it may be... I, a, a truth problem, or it may be an obedience problem. Jesus asked, why don't you do what I say? When you have a truth problem, you look back at Jesus and say, I don't really know what you've said. Have any of you been there? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Lori, I wonder if 
when you felt the Lord calling you to go to Uganda if you maybe didn't come back and check that a time or two. That probably could not be true. In fact, I remember our first conversation and part of your um, telling us the story was some of this, I think I need to check back in on the truth of this thing. Sometimes we have a truth problem, don't we? Have you, have you like me, just sometimes in frustration said to God, just tell me enough already. Just tell me what you want me to do. I'll do it. I mean, whatever, but just tell me what you want me to do. Sometimes we have a truth problem. Now, let me just suggest that part of Evergreen here, we, we substantially try to solve that truth problem by being people of God's Word, the Bible, just discovering it from one end to the other. We're a 4G church here at Evergreen. The first G is, is God, and we spend time one-on-one with Him every day. And then we gather like this for teaching on the weekends. And the third G is we group. We group up together in life groups. If you're not a part of one, check them out in the lobby before you go and you're munching on some fun stuff and, and find one that you might connect with as well because we get together. We hear God's truth by his word. We, we hear God's truth by his spirit that convicts us and challenges us and, and gives us direction. We discover God's truth when we're in community together and we're talking and thinking and providing godly counsel to one another. We hear God's truth when we're reading inspired books and when we're, and when we're listening to messages and engaged in Bible studies together, solving the truth problem. Jesus assumed that we would do that. He said, because you come and you hear my words. But for some of us, sometimes it's an obedience problem. Because his next phrase is, and puts them into practice. So this is where, this is where life gets interesting. And this is where I have the privilege to help people once in a while. Um, I've cleared some time in my calendar this week for pastoral counseling. Don't indicate whether or not you think you'd be interested. Just let me tell you what that's like. And then if you're interested, I'll be glad to schedule you for one of the five-minute time slots later, okay? That sound like a good deal? Yeah. Five minutes, you say, yeah. Because I don't have much to say in pastoral counseling. I have three questions, and then I have some awkward silences. Are you ready to go? Group counseling, here we go. What's your problem? Yeah. And I've discovered that generally people are usually have a pretty good handle on what the problem is. Well, sometimes it takes them longer than five minutes or 55 minutes to tell the problem, but yeah, I've discovered that generally people have a pretty good handle on the problem. And then there's this awkward silence. Let's think about the problem. And the second question, you ready for it? Is what's God told you to do about that? And what I've discovered is that generally people have a pretty good handle on what God's told them to do about it. And then we have an awkward silence. And then I asked the third question. So what are you going to do about that? And then after an awkward silence, I say, can I pray for you? And then I pray for them. It's generally not very long, but it's sincere and it's accurate. God, give them the guts, courage, and strength to do what you've told them to do. Amen. Any of you want to sign up? Chuck, you ought to be first on the list. There we go. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I got one. Nikki. All right. Yeah. Isn't that often true? Sometimes it's a truth problem. Let's discover what God's saying. Man, but the truth of the matter is, if you've been around Jesus for a few weeks, you already know so much more than you have put into practice. And man, if you're like me and you have hung around Christ for decades, you are probably wildly filled with opportunities to practice. Over the last three weeks, as others in the teaching team have talked us through the Sermon on the Mount, I went back and just pulled very quickly five 
of these Jesus-like radical ideas about Jesus giving us clear direction. Notice them with me. How about helping herters this week? Verses 27 and 28, we had read, do good to those who hate you and bless those that curse you and pray for those that mistreat you. How many of you think you might have an opportunity to help a herder this week? Yeah. How about take some hits? Verse 29, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other also. And talk very clearly. This is, not, this is not talking about domestic abuse. This is not being stupid. This is one's willingness to live an unfair life. I can take that hit. I can absorb that. It doesn't have to be equal. Life doesn't have to be fair. I'm man enough to take it. How about giving it? Give to everyone who asks you. Give and it'll be given to you. How about giving generously? Give more, verse 28. If someone asks for your coat, why don't you go ahead and give them your shirt too? How about forgiving always, verse 37. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Wow. I think the truth is that probably many of us already know a lot more than we have to know to practice this week. But all of us need to be on this vital edge of hearing what Jesus is calling us to do next. This last week, uh, several of us on the team were at a pastor's conference, and I ran into an old friend. Uh, old because, <clears throat> old friend because I've known him for a long time, and old because he's like two or three years older than me. I'm happy to let you know that. His name's Dennis Easter. Is that name familiar to any of you here? Yeah, a few of you? Yeah. Well, I mentioned Dennis because <laughs> Alan and Aaron, as you know, he was one of the 34 duly appointed pastors to Evergreen over its 83-year history. He was 20 years old, and he was appointed here for three, week, uh, three months, one summer. Now, um, Dennis was, uh, and I were uh, rec- uh, recalling that story, and it's just kind of fun now at this point in life, and fun for me to think about at least. And he mentioned that uh, when Dan and Connie Stewart were here a few years ago, that uh, Dan had invited Dennis to come and speak, and that when he got up after the introduction, he just looked out here at Evergreen, and he just said to everybody, I'm sorry. And he just let it hang. And someone said, for what? And he said, for the three months that I was here, I don't recall a thing that I did, but I'm sure almost everything I did deserves an apology. I am sorry. (laughs) I had a 10-minute phone conversation a few years ago with Dennis, and it changed the way I think about following Jesus. And it changed the way I try to practice the application of this story. At the time, uh, we were living in L.A. and served as the U.S. National Director of Church Planning for our denominational family, Foursquare, and I was the general uh, supervisor. And I worked with, at that time, nine district supervisors that were scattered across the country, and they were giving oversight to about 2,000 churches at the time. So frequently during the day, uh, I was on the phone talking with one or more of those supervisors about situations in their district. Dennis called and he described in probably about five minutes one of the gnarliest, messiest, ugliest past uh, church situations that I've ever heard of. It had all of it. Financial malfeasance, sexual immorality, family relationship infighting, leadership strife. It was a stinking mess in a church. 
And at the end of the conversation, I had learned enough about life to know that when you ask a couple more questions, things often go better. And after he told me the story, I said, Jenna, Dennis, what can I do to help you today? That's the Jesus question. And he said, I'm asking you to pray for me today. I thought, that's interesting. He's not asking me for counsel. He's asking me for prayer. I have one question to go. How would you like for me to pray for you today? It was a good question because he had a great answer. He said, Jared, I'm asking you to pray for me today because I have in the last several years encountered similar, messy, horrible, ugly, disastrous church situations. And God has been faithful every time. And he said, I'm asking you to pray for me today because I'm afraid that I will lean on what I've learned in the past, that I will remember old stories, that I will take wisdom from that, and I will apply it to this situation, and I will miss what the creative God himself is doing fresh in this place and time for these people. I'm asking you to pray for me that I'll hear what Jesus is doing in this situation today. Wow. That's the difference between a religious Christian and a follower who hears and obeys. And this has been my life experience. Now, some of you have just come into faith in Christ. Some of you are making that decision to follow Jesus Christ today. You're becoming a fresh follower. Others of you are leaving this service and you're about to go into Pastor Alex's class on new beginnings. You've just been walking with Jesus for a few weeks or months and you're engaging freshly. <clears throat> some of you are going to be baptized in water next weekend here as we do at Evergreen every, every uh, once a month. You're just beginning your fresh relationship with Jesus. But let me talk to those of you that, like me, have been following Christ for a long time. We're the ones that are most likely going to get religious in this deal. We've been there. We've done that. We've extrapolated the wisdom. We've seen similar situations. And all of a sudden, life becomes predictable, certain, instead of fresh and vibrant. Oh, it's safe rather than risky. It's comfortable rather than anxiety-producing. But, oh, it smacks of religious dust. And Jesus, at the end of his grand message, stands and says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Let me tell you a story. There was a wise man, and he heard my words, and he put them into practice. And because he dug in the ground and dug deeper to the rock and laid a foundation, when the storm came and the winds blew, his house stood. But let me tell you about another man that while he was busy building his life, did not dig into the foundation. The man who heard my words but did not put them into practice, and when the winds blew, the house came down with a crash. Hmm. Two ways to live life. One is certain and it's safe and it's comfortable. 
The other is uncertain, it's unsafe, it evokes anxiety, and it's radical. And oh, isn't it the only way to live? And if you'd like to follow Jesus with me this week, I'd like to invite you to an experiment for one week on how to live that kind of life. Notice the application possibilities as they come up. The first one is this. Let's take radical action this week. Radical, the word, comes from the Latin word for root. Something that's radical goes back to its root. A radius extends out from the root. Living a life, a followership of Jesus Christ is a radical life in that it comes back to the root of the substance of who this God-man is and how he lives life. I invite you to live a radical Christ-following life this week. The second is, hey, if you've got a truth problem, fix the truth problem. If you don't know what God is saying, find some help. And if you don't know what God has said, find a life of committed devotion to discovering the Scriptures, His Word. And if you don't know how to listen to the voice of His Spirit, Hang out with some people that are on the way in that discovery as well. Find out what he's calling you to do. And maybe you have an obedience problem, and I'd encourage you today, listen, if you know what he's calling you to do, jump in and just do it as you ask yourself these three great questions. Number one, so what's the problem? And number two, what has God told me to do? And number three, so what am I going to do about that? Lori, it was uh, three and a half years ago, you had a problem. You uh, didn't have a job, and you needed to work. And you asked God to give you direction, dangerous. And he did, and he told you to move to Uganda. And after deciding that really was his direction, you went to Uganda. And it was an answer to the prayers of many. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Dangerous prayer. And eternity is changed because you had a problem and you knew what God told you to do and you decided to do it. Wow. Last week, a bunch of you guys, a men's retreat, raise your hand if you were there. There's about 75 guys over there, yeah. I talked with one of you. I won't out you here. I didn't ask for permission, but I said, man, see you at the retreat. That's great. I hadn't seen your name on the registration list a few days ago. And he looked at me kind of happy, but a little chagrined. And he said, yeah, that's because you stuck it to me. I said, what do you mean? Like, what, what, what? Blame shifting to me? How could I do anything wrong? He says, yeah, last weekend I was sitting there, and he said, you guys have probably asked three questions. Number one, do I want to go? And I answered it, not really, all that much. Do I have money, extra money laying around to go? No. And number three, do I feel like I have the time? And he said, I comfortably answered no to all three of those. And then he said, dastardly you. He said, you asked the fourth question. Does Jesus want me to go? And he said, when I asked that question, I went out and I signed up and I'm here. So I said, so how's that working for you? He said, I'm loving it. I'm so glad I came. And isn't that the truth? When we ask the dangerous question, what do you want me to do? 
and when he gives us direction and when we find the courage to take the step to put into practice what he's told us to do, our lives are changed and so is the world around us.